Welcome to Advent and welcome to the Ponder a New podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and these next couple of weeks, uh, my congregation, as well as many other uh, Lutheran and just other churches, uh, remember or really celebrate a season called Advent, these four weeks leading up to Christmas. And Advent is from the Latin for to come. And so we're thinking about preparing our hearts, our homes, the world for the coming of Christ. Coming as a baby uh, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, but also ultimately as the one who will come again to bring about the full restoration of all things. And uh, to get at uh, that then, the next couple of weeks in the podcast, we're going to be uh, looking at the manger scene and particular pieces of the manger scene. And this was always one of my favorite things to do in the Advent season among the various Advent calendars that my family had. It was also one where every day of the season we got to put a new piece into the manger. And as you can imagine, uh, 24 pieces means they kind of had to be pretty creative after a while about who was included. And so they had a number of animals in there. And I'm curious if you um, can think of how many animals are in the story of Christmas. I think all of us associate a number of animals and maybe even in your own nativity set there are are animals as well everything from camels for the wise men to sheep for the shepherds to maybe a a, an ox or a donkey for mary or just who knows all the animals in there and i um and i want to then share for the scripture verse today it's not going to be something you normally associate with christmas it's actually from paul's letter to the romans but um As I'm going to eventually get to in the podcast, it's a reminder of why the Christmas story, uh, the story of Jesus' coming into this world, uh, needs uh, needs animals to, to be part of it. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." The kids were so adorable. They wore these little white cherub choir robes. And uh, they were going up to the front of the church to sing. And the teacher, the instructors of the group, had even made the kids fold their hands in prayer, which I think was meant to make them look pious. But actually, I think it was just because there were a bunch of boys in this choir. And notice the boys up until about age of 14 cannot help themselves but just touch other boys, and they wanted to sort of avoid them being all over each other. And uh, 
they got up there and they sang this song and uh, about all the different animals that were there in Jesus's birth. And they even had costumes on. So there were two little boys wearing donkey hats that sang, I said the donkey shaggy and brown. And uh, they all, it was just, so, it was kind of a cute fest. And then at the end, I think even the two boys who were uh, the donkeys, they even kind of got a little bit of a fight with each other. I mean, it was, it was pure uh, awesomeness of Christmas and kids. Uh, and, you know, I think part of the, beauty of Christmas is that Good Friday and Easter very much lean into the territory of things that are for adults. It's difficult for children to understand um, the suffering of Jesus on a cross or what the resurrection means. I mean, it's difficult enough for us as adults, but for kids, this is just kind of bewildering a lot of times. But Christmas, they can get into. And uh, so again, we just uh, love that with the animals, how the kids kind of just drawn in and maybe the sort of the uh, inner nostalgia that we all have, the longing for, for to sort of a more uh, agricultural bucolic past. We want this sort of connection as kids. And anyway, so all this stuff about kids and the animals and they're part of the manger scene. But what about as adults? Like what do we make of these, these animals uh, in the manger scene? And, uh, well, part of it may be that it's an invitation to view the, the Christmas scene with a little bit of childlike wonder as we approach and, and remember sort of our own childhood and getting into this story. Uh, for many, well, we grew up with this story. And so, again, maybe it's a, an invitation to a little bit of that nostalgia, but really sort of the way in which the story meant something to us when we were a kid. I think there's a, another way in, in which the Christmas story animals can also remind us of the humility of the birth of Christ, that uh, Jesus was born in the gospel, as Luke tells it, uh, where there was no room for them in the end, but they had to go and put Jesus, his head down in a manger. And, you know, there's this is an aside, but there is some scholarly debate over what actually took place in terms of what was the manger, what was the inn, what did that look like in that historical time, and how our own senses of a barn are probably, you know, not what it looked like then. But the big picture, no matter what, is that there were animals, and that Jesus ate again. Um, Jesus was born, you know, where there would have been cow and other animal smells uh, all around. So uh, perhaps the animals, too, invite us into the humility of Christ's birth. But I think the animals can also uh, draw us into another layer of contemplation. The animals are certainly part of the uh, original story that Luke tells, even if my sort of junior compliance officer felt that there were too many pieces in this song when the kids sang. You know, we know there were shepherds and they brought sheep and there's maybe, maybe a donkey that Mary was on, but certainly all the sort of the service and pack animals would have been there in this little manger. But it's beyond that. It's really beyond that because for for a lot of us, we understand the story of Jesus's birth, perhaps in terms of our own lives and who Jesus is, what this means that God became one of us in terms of friendship with Jesus, in terms of forgiveness, uh, 
resurrection from the dead, life everlasting, eternal life. And sometimes we sort of move then to beyond our own story, to the sort of the human story, the human family story, that Christ's redemption means uh, salvation for all humans and that there will um, be reconciliation between people and, again, how we want to sort of parse out who's in or who's out. Um, but fundamentally that somehow this is a bigger than just us, that there's something global, uh, sort of, again, the whole human family that Jesus has, has died for. But the animals remind us that there's even a, a bigger sort of scope to Jesus's work. What I preached on a few weeks ago using the Greek word apokatastasis, restoration, and that really the whole arc of Scripture involves, uh, first of all, God's care, um, not just God's care, but the way in which all of creation, uh, the, not just the humans, are, are part of God's um, love, right? And that the creation story in Genesis 1 um, is not an act of a begrudging sort of creation by God, but this act of, of rejoicing and sort of imagination come into being, um, sort of a voice that calls forth, including animals. And so uh, there's animals and the trees and the forests and the fields are all part of this creation story. And then in the Psalms, we read that all of creation in so many ways is praising God. And, and one day again, the trees and the fields shall clap their hands and so there's this beautiful sense in the, throughout Scripture of creation being involved in the praise of God. But the New Testament makes another turn, and the New Testament begins to offer that creation itself is longing for redemption, that creation itself is hungry for a renewal, and that Jesus is part of its delivery. So, for instance, when Jesus is walking in on what we call Palm Sunday on the donkey to Jerusalem, they say, stop, make, make the people stop cheering for you. And Jesus said, even if they were to be silent, the stones would cry out. And then what I had read earlier of Paul's letter to the Romans there, where Paul talks about that Jesus's coming is to address the deepest groanings of all of creation. And that then we have in the book of Revelation at the end, the destruction of so much of what's happening on earth, yet the very last scene is the new heaven and the new earth. The end goal here isn't the leaving behind of, of humanity uh, from our earthly home, but it's the a new earth, a, a new heaven, that somehow uh, heaven and earth have become one there through the the forgiveness and resurrection in Jesus Christ. So there's an arc here, and the New Testament begins to lean into that, that Jesus' uh, incarnation, coming one of us, his birth, his death and his resurrection and his coming again are not just again for a human individual or even the human family, but all of creation. And so might the animals then point us point you towards this, this broader picture, this cosmic scope of, of what God is doing in, in Jesus Christ. So what might that, though, have to do with a sense of peace this holiday? Well, perhaps, again, the 
humility of the animals can remind us to keep our Christmas a bit simpler. Um, or perhaps this sort of environmental um, restoration project that Jesus is, is part of can you know, help us kind of, again, maybe there's something green we want to do uh, at Christmas and not just the Christmas tree, but in terms of um, helping with an, the environment. Um, I want to offer, though, that when it comes to the environment, that what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, that the creation is subject to futility and is sort of groaning in despair, I know a lot of people who would readily agree to that. And I realize that certain things about the environment, like climate change, can be very political, especially when it comes down to policy and energy and the cost of energy and the transition away from fossil fuels. But I think all of us are experiencing changes in the climate. And even if, again, we want to sort of go away from that debate, it's clear that if there's 8 billion people on the earth, that how we uh, treat treat the earth um, matters. And I don't think any human is excited about the fact that in the Pacific, we have you know, this huge island of just plastic trash that just floats out there and so forth. So, so I think there's definitely a way in, in which um, we're confronted in this, this century with sort of this ecological crisis. Um, and what I often find, though, is that people then who really sort of buy into that, believe it, often it's accompanied not only by a zeal to work on the environment, but also a deep sense of despair. I remember there was this, I think it was called The Newsroom of Show, it was Aaron Sorkin was the director, and at one point they had, they were given an interview, and there was this sort of super environmental guy, and the guy interviewing him was like, so, um, yeah, so if we do this and this, then everything should be fine, and the environmentalist was like, no. It is past the point of no return. It is too late. You know, all of life on Earth will will cease to exist as we know it. So again, there can be a sort of a fatalism that actually undermines people's incentive to to work towards this. And I think what what we can do is we can be reminded that not only is in the deepest of our hopes that somehow the Earth will be fulfilled in the coming of Christ— but that God loves this world, right? That's in fact what John 3.16 says. It doesn't even say God loves sort of just humans. God, God loves the world. And so just a reminder um, that ultimately, even though we as humans uh, will make profound mistakes in our lives with each other and with the environment, that God is not going to give up on that, that there really is um, a sense that this mess that we've made of the world that somehow that ultimately God will will redeem that too. And that might come about through change in human behavior. It might be through technology or it might be ultimately through Christ's second coming and the restoration of all things. So hopefully our animals in the manger scene can, can um, not just simply spur us to good action or something relative to the environment, but can remind us that God loves the whole world, that animals are part of what God is doing. Um, you know, the sort of the question I get asked as a pastor, is my dog in heaven? Well, I, I, that's above my third of pay grade, but I do know that uh, creation, again, is the, the entire scope of creation is in God's heart and, and God's care. And then what we can find then and we can listen and we can see that in, even in these Christmas hymns that we have, that it's evident that all of creation is, is there. So enjoy to the world, right? Let heaven and nature sing. Um, and then, or even in 
angels we have heard on high, right? And the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous refrain. So there's this sense that we, um, this Christmas, hopefully will will hear the uh, stories, not just about uh, Jesus and all the rest of the characters and that we're going to talk about in the manger scene, but uh, that uh, this is a, an invitation by God of all creation to to behold and to celebrate then the the wonder that God is doing and that when we praise Jesus, we're doing so in some mystical way with all of creation and indeed as heaven and nature sing joy to the world. I want to add a coda and I want to go back to that question about whether dogs go to heaven. Uh, we know the cats don't. No, no, just kidding. Well, anyway, so the, the question is, you know, are, are other animals in the new creation. And I think this is actually a pretty, pretty fascinating one, because if we want to argue that somehow the Bible has in view the salvation of the world and not just humans, but some sort of grander sense of God doing all this, that there really is a new creation, a new earth, then is that new earth only populated by humans? Or are there other animals? Whew. I mean, part of it relates to what the resurrected body will look like. <laughs> you know, like right now, I as a human need bacteria in my body, other living organisms to, to somehow um, eat the food that I eat. Um, will I need this? Um, in heaven, will I still need food? Um, and also, um, there, there, are, there are glimpses that in heaven there are animals, and not just in the book of Revelation with all sorts of crazy, kind of scary images of animals that might be metaphorical. But, you know, Jesus commands birds to, uh, as his army, to devour the, the forces of Satan. So it does seem like somehow there are, um, there are animals uh, or some sort of non-humanoid creatures in 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 heaven, um, but again, what does what does it all look like? And and for instance, if there is a new creation, does this mean that other animals no longer participate in the cycle of dying? That only humans sort of like are humans granted immortality, but but everything else sort of suffers the vicissitudes of of flesh. Ah, these are the reasons why when people come to me with uh, grieving the loss of a pet, I don't attempt to answer such questions. I simply can say, well, God has an, a heart for all living creatures, and God loves uh, every living creature more than we do. Um, but yeah, so I can't definitively answer that, um, but just to unpack it a little bit more, that it seems as if, again, the Bible has in mind a participation by living creatures, not just humans, like God and the ark saves the other animals. Um, the animals are there at Jesus' birth. There's animals uh, in the story of Reve in, in the heavenly images in Revelation. Um, but yeah, I can't answer all the questions about souls and immortality and body and all that, other than to say that God's heart is uh, bigger, than, bigger than ours. So hopefully that's uh, enough for some more pondering.